Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 981. To begin today's show, David Lorela welcomes Katie Wu, who covers the St. Louis Cardinals for The Athletic. Katie begins by sharing some of her favorite baseball memories, as well as ones from covering the Cardinals so far, such as their 17-game win streak in 2021 and Miles Miklas's near-no-hitter. Katie also describes the feeling of not only witnessing history, but also writing it and sharing it, and how much incredible history there is in the Cardinals franchise. Finally, we hear about veteran behaviors like Adam Wainwright's day after pitching old man walks and Albert Pujols embracing the mentorship role. But what I've really enjoyed watching from Albert's perspective is how he mentors the younger players on the Cardinals. Cardinals have a huge rookie movement going on in St. Louis this year. I know we get caught up in the Adam Wainwrights, the Pujols, the Adair Molinas, rightfully so. But Cardinals have had, at this point, nearly 15 players make their major league debut this year. They've relied so heavily on their rookies. Albert Pujols has been a mentor to many of them, including Juan Yepes, who Adam Wainwright calls Albert Cito, Little Albert. Those two are connected at the hip. Their lockers are near each other in the locker room. Seeing him embrace the mentorship role at the end of his career has been, I think, a life lesson anyone, even if you're not a baseball fan, can benefit from. After that, Jay Jaffe welcomes Luke Eplin, author of Our Team, the epic story of four men in the World Series that changed baseball. Jay just read the book, which is about Larry Doby, Bill Veck, Bob Feller, and Satchel Paige leading Cleveland to a 1948 World Series championship. Jay and Luke talk about Doby being historically underserved and how his barrier breaking differed from the experience of Jackie Robinson. We also hear about Doby's unique relationships with Paige, Joe Gordon, and Tris Speaker. The duo also discuss Bill Veck's antics, Bob Feller's fame, Paige's personality, and how Doby differed from all of them. Veck. Page and Feller, to me, seem of a piece with one another. They are men who all wrote more than one autobiography in their times. They really relied on their narratives and sort of massaging their own narratives, sort of using the narratives as currency to advance their own personal and financial interests. They were sort of experts at playing with the press, and they were, you know, great at sort of thinking themselves as sort of entrepreneurial individuals in some sense. Doby was not like that. Doby never wrote his autobiography. Doby did not like to do interviews. He was introverted. He was much quieter than Paige or Jackie Robinson or something like that. So I found him to be the most difficult character to get to know simply because there's so much less documentation about him. But before we get to these great conversations, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. Not only is it the best place for you to snag your Fangraphs merch, but you can also pick up an ad-free membership for yourself or as a gift for a friend. This is the best way to not only browse the site, but to also support the site, helping us to keep doing everything we do. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans. This is David Lorela. My guest is Katie Wu, who covers the St. Louis Cardinals for The Athletic. Katie, thanks for being a guest on Fangraphs Audio. Yeah, David, thanks so much for having me. How are you? I am on vacation, actually, in Michigan talking from a hotel, so I am very good. When we're done with this podcast, I'm going to be going out and enjoying the uh, great outdoors. Wow, I'm jealous of you, and I think you should get some bonus points for working on your vacation. I hope that uh, my editor is listening to this. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, hey, we're obviously going to talk Cardinals, but I want to start with the question that I asked 10 uh, big league players, you know, this for a piece that ran at Fangraphs a little over a week ago. What is your favorite baseball memory? Oh, my favorite baseball memory. There's there's so many that I can pick from. It's funny how like just a wave of, of flash and memories just came, came flying at me. But I think if I'm going to pick one, it's not going to be anything work-related. And it's not really a memory, a specific memory. It's just a collection of memories. I grew up right outside of San Francisco, and I would go to Giants games with my dad all of the time. And every time I think about work or if I try to get you know bogged down maybe with the, the responsibilities and, and the workload of this job, I think about how much fun it was as a child, as a kid growing up, to sometimes take a day off of school and go to a baseball game with my dad. And, and just, it didn't even matter who won or lost at the time, you know, it was pretty much like I wanted the Giants to win. But at the end of the day, it was just really cool to be there and spending time with my dad. So I think that is my favorite baseball memory. Again, not anything specific, but, but just the whole childhood atmosphere and recollection is something that I still treasure to this day. Which is understandable. And I learned from talking to, you know, the cross section of players that, that is really what they cherish. Most of the guys I asked said, does it have to be about my career? You know, Jack Flaherty, for instance, brought us back to, uh, you know, the Derek Jeter flip play in the ALDS in, oh boy, was that 2001, I think? You know, he was quite young at the time, as were you, and that happened against Oakland. So I don't know if you actually remember that play or have just I read do. about it. I do remember it. It's one of my very first baseball memories. Right. So you were how old at the time? I want to say 2001. I was around five or six, probably the same age as Jack, actually. So you were a very, you were a baseball fan at a pretty young age. Absolutely. I went to my first baseball game at the Oakland Coliseum when I was six weeks old. Why my parents and grandfather thought it was a great idea to bring a six-week-old to a baseball game, I don't know. But it kind of cemented uh, the, the affinity I would have for this sport going forward very early on in my lifetime. No, my daughter, I believe, was maybe eight or nine months when I brought her to Fenway Park for the first time. So you got to start him young. You have to. So yeah, let's jump to, you know, Jack and the other players who wanted to talk about, you know, like childhood memories of games. You know, most of them did add a playing career favorite. You've only been in this job now for a couple of, well, a year and a half, right? With uh, yes. covering the Cardinals? Do you actually have a favorite memory or a standout memory from this year and a half from a work perspective? I do. And it takes me back to last September when the Cardinals were in the middle of their historic 17-game winning streak that would propel them to the postseason despite very unlikely odds. And uh, I think about what it was like at Wrigley Field. Cardinals were playing a doubleheader that day in September as if things weren't hard enough already. And... They needed to win these next two games. So they won game one. That brought their winning streak to 14. And their second game, the doubleheader, didn't look like they'd win at all. And they pulled off this insane, like, 11-player double play that involved their center fielder and Harrison Bader in a rundown in the infield and got the double play, won the game. 15 wins in a row at that point was an organizational record. And at that moment, to do it against Cardinals Cubs at Wrigley Field, it kind of just hit me that not only was I witnessing history, I was telling it. And being so early in my career, I'd never had that that realization before. So I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm trying to process what just happened because there's no way in real time, I don't know how official scores do it, I could have tracked how that double play went down. But I'm also in my head thinking, 
this is insane. And I highly doubt I'm ever going to be able to cover a winning streak of this magnitude and, and this that has so much history behind it ever in my career. And I'm doing it in month six. So to sit there, of course, we know how the the 2021 postseason rolled out. Cardinals did make that last wild card spot. They did lose to the Dodgers in the wild card game. I'm always going to remember what it was like to kind of have that wave hit me, that wave of realization that I'm writing history right now. And what I'm seeing is something that people are going to talk about for decades to come. And you almost got a no-hitter recently. You know, Miles Michaelis was part of this compilation I did on Favorite Memories, and he mentioned multiple ones, as you did, and one was that near no-hitter. It was shocking to me because, you know, there's always a couple of plays when you're covering a no-hitter that makes you think, okay, this is going to happen. And the Cardinals, especially with their rookie second baseman, Nolan Gorbin, making a couple of stellar defensive plays. I was funny, and it was a doubleheader. Again, I really need to stay away from these doubleheaders. They become so dramatic. It was the second night of a day-night doubleheader. I remember it was sweltering outside. And sometimes, because at The Athletic, we don't write a game story after every game, I'll be at games, and I'll be working on something in the future. So I remember watching the first game, sitting down for the second game, and working on a feature. I have headphones, and I'm listening to the game. I'm looking up if anything happens. And around the fifth inning... I look at my scorebook, which I hadn't kept score since for about the third inning, and I'm going to fill it in, and I realize I haven't recorded a hit yet. But it never registered to me because the Pirates had scored a run. So it really wasn't on my radar at all. And I said, okay, let me come back to this in an inning and see what's going on. And by the sixth inning, Gorman had made a couple of those stellar plays that I mentioned, and Miles Michaelis still had given up a hit. And I said, oh my gosh, this feature no longer matters because I think Miles Michaelis is going to throw a no-hitter. Uh, it was shocking to me that he didn't, but we were talking to Ryan Helsley, who I'm sure we'll get into, fantastic year he's having yesterday, and he said that he told Miles the other day, you know, what you did was actually more impressive. It's been more historic. Uh, there's only a handful of pitchers that have ever become a strike away from a no-hitter and not gotten it compared to all the hitters that have thrown a no-hitter. So really what you did was harder. And I thought that was a nice way to look at it. What Miles Michaelis has done for the Cardinals this year is nothing short of dominant. I think his resurgence has been a huge part in why the Cardinals have been so successful given their concerns over their starting rotation. And it certainly has been fun to watch just from a human element perspective and knowing what Miles has been through over the last few years, going Going to Japan, reinventing himself, two separate injuries, certainly a key part in the Cardinals' success so far. No, Miles Michaelis is certainly a good story. I met him for the first time when the Cardinals were at, at Fenway Park recently. He has quite the personality. He does. Very authentic in who he is, which I, I really appreciate. He's uh, never going to shy away from, from who he is, and I think that's something to be admired. And certainly a joy for people covering the team because we all know as reporters that there's some players in the clubhouse, you know, they're perfectly fine guys, but they don't really have a lot to share. They're maybe a little bit like Derek Jeter, you know, just being too careful. Miles and from what I could tell, a few other players on the current Cardinals team, they like to talk. They like to open up and really share, you know, their thoughts on baseball. Yeah, absolutely. I think the Cardinals have a really fun clubhouse this year. One, they have a very respectful clubhouse. I mean, those guys go in there and they're accountable and they're easy to work with. And I appreciate that. But to your point, Miles does not hold back and neither do a couple other guys. I can tell you what his brunch order is in almost every road city, because that is our common talking ground is, you know, what did you have for breakfast today? Where should I go in this city? Uh, we're actually going to do a sit down story in Atlanta next week. And I have never been to Cobb County or Truist Park. So I asked Miles, hey, where's a good place to go? Where do you want to go for brunch and do the story? And in what would come as zero surprise, he said, oh, we're going to go to Waffle House. 
And I said, okay, let's do that. But it is certainly fun to get to know these players from a personality standpoint. I think we can get as reporters so caught up in the production and the storylines of the season that it's really nice to have the human element too and get to know these guys on a personal level. It makes covering them so much easier. And it's something that I really value in the job is trying to establish personal connections and personal relationships because they are so much more than just a player with a number on their back, right? I, I One of my gripes with this industry is sometimes we tend to view players as assets. And sure, I know that this is a business. I 100% agree, and I can understand that sentiment. But they still are players with, with legitimate feelings and deserve to be, I think, seen on that level too. So getting to know these guys and this coaching staff on a personal level has been one of the unexpected joys from this for this job for me. What has it been like, Katie, to cover Albert Pujols? You know, sometimes, for example, yesterday, you just kind of have to sit back and watch it. Uh, He was taking live batting practice before the game yesterday. And if you've never seen a player like Albert Pujols take batting practice and you're a baseball enthusiast, put it on your bucket list. It is just remarkable to see how effortless that ball flies off his bat. That has been really cool to see. Anytime he takes live VP on the field, I make sure I'm around just so I can watch and just kind of observe how that takes place and really kind of see, again, it goes back to what I was saying about that double play last year in that winning streak. It's historic. And I'm not sure you're ever going to see a player like Albert Pujols ever again. But what I've really enjoyed watching from Albert's perspective is how he mentors the younger players on the Cardinals. Cardinals have a huge rookie movement going on in St. Louis this year. I know we get caught up in the Adam Wainwrights, the Pujols, the Adir Molinas, rightfully so. But Cardinals have had, at this point, nearly 15 players make their major league debut this year. They've relied so heavily on their rookies. Albert Pujols has been a mentor to many of them, including Juan Yepes, who Adam Wainwright calls Albert Cito, little Albert. Those two are connected at the hip. Their lockers are near each other in the locker room. Seeing him embrace the mentorship role at the end of his career has been, I think, a life lesson anyone, even if you're not a baseball fan, can benefit from. It's just, I know that when you look at Albert's stat line and maybe you look at the production levels, it's a, it's not where he was 10 years ago, but the Cardinals obviously did not bring him back to be the Albert he was 10 years ago. They brought him back to do exactly what he's doing, which is being a serviceable bat against left-handed pitchers and molding the next generation of Cardinals like Brendan Donovan, like Nolan Gorman, like Yepes, and um, it seems to be working for sure. And with those young players in mind, although this question really can include anybody, who is the most fun player to watch on the Cardinals right now? Ooh, the most fun. I like this question. Um, when Harrison Bader is healthy, I think the ability to watch him defensively in center field is I really enjoy. He's No matter where that ball is hit or how unlikely it seems that it's going to get caught, I don't know how, but Harrison always has the perfect read and the perfect route. You can say that same way about Nolan Arenado at third base. I don't know how he makes the plays that he does. It's physically impossible sometimes when you think about gravity and physics for his body to do what he does. Uh, He made a handful of plays against the Marlins yesterday in their Cardinals 5-3 win, where it just seemed like the way his body was shifting was to throw in a certain direction, and he somehow can contort himself and make a perfect throw in the opposite direction. That has been really fun to see. And of course, I think every Cardinals fan and even baseball fan, maybe not Cubs, but I'd like to think Cubs fans too at times, can enjoy seeing what Adam Wainwright is doing at 40 years old, still being one of the the most consistent pitchers in the league. The way that he goes out there and calls his own game and is so convicted in what he's doing. And it seems like no matter when, whatever it is, if the Cardinals need him, if they've had a, maybe perhaps their rotation hasn't gone as long, they are short on bullpen guys, they need a bounce back win. It always lines up for Adam Wainwright to deliver, and 
he usually always does. So that's been a treat for me too. Really though, to see the Cardinals and, and see the kind of perfect blend of established veterans and up and coming rookies. I mean, you can make the argument that as they're chasing their way down for a postseason spot, as we re- reach the halfway point of the season, they also have a uh, legitimate contender for the National League MVP and Paul Goldschmidt and a legitimate contender for the National League Rookie of the Year and Brendan Donovan. So those are things that I enjoy watching too, just just the overall progress and potential that this team has down the stretch of the summer. Who, Katie, would you say is the most underrated or, or underappreciated player on this team? Maybe not by Cardinals fans, but for people around the country who don't follow this team on a day-to-day basis. I'm glad you asked it the way that you did, because Cardinals fans have come to truly value who is Tommy Edmond. I mean, what he's done for the Cardinals, even dating back to last year, he's so versatile. He can play the middle infield. He can play the quarter outfield. He can bat pretty much anywhere atop the lineup, but he's really solidified himself as a switch hitting leadoff guy. Made the transition from a 20, from 2021's gold glove winning second baseman to the starting shortstop midway through the spring or midway through the early season, I should say. I think Cardinals fans have really come to appreciate what the team has dubbed as Steady Eddie, but I don't think the rest of Major League Baseball, and that's because they don't see it every day, has really seen the impact that Tommy Edmond brings to this Cardinals team. I mean, he has the highest B-war in baseball. When you look at baseball reference, when you look at fan graphs, Tommy Edmond's in the top 10 of war. He's beating out guys like Mike Trout, Mookie Betts. He's right along there with guys like Paul Goldschmidt, Manny Machado. And those are all names that you associate with power, right, and, and prestige, and Tommy Edmond is really just 16 months into playing as an everyday consistent player. And he's right along some of the game's best. So I think Cardinals fans, they know what Tommy Edmond brings to the table. And I don't think it'll be much longer before MLB is put on notice as well. You mentioned Brendan Donovan a few minutes ago. When I talked to Donovan at Fenway, I remember thinking afterwards, trying to think, you know, who does he remind me of as a player? And Tommy Edmond came quickly to mind until I started thinking about the the fact that Tommy is such a better defender than Donovan, although they both play multiple positions or can. But as hitters, do you think they are pretty similar? In Donovan and Edmond, I can see that yeah. um, because they both have the the power, although they don't consistently display it all the time because they don't need to. Um, I know that Brendan Donovan was regarded as, I mean, he almost made this team out of spring. You could make the argument that he should have made this team out of spring. He's a lefty guy that gets on base. Tommy Edmonds is a switch hitter, but certainly gets on base from the left-hand side. They have those quick, powerful swings. They work a good count. I see. I can definitely see them being profiled as similar players. And I think that is really helpful when you have the manager, a new manager like Ollie Marmel, who has really emphasized depth and roster flexibility and lineup flexibility, guys like Brendan Donovan and Tommy Edmond are huge, critical parts in that. So I do think offensively they prototype the same. I think they prototype defensively the same as well. It's It'd be difficult to imagine where this team would be in the standings without the consistent play and the durability and the fluidity that Tommy Edmond and Brendan Donovan bring. You just mentioned the team having a new manager. I wasn't thinking to ask you about that, but I guess I really should. What has changed with the team replacing Mike Schultz with uh, Ali Marmel? Well, after about nearly 80 games now, I think that's a big enough sample size to to kind of claim what the traits are that Ali has in a manager. I mean, he's always preached honesty, and that was something that he had even as the bench coach over the last couple of seasons. He is such a young manager, the youngest manager in the major leagues at 35 years old, but he doesn't act that way. He's very poised, keeps his calm composure. He's not afraid to be honest and state 
you know, if a player is not performing well and what needs to be better. And I think that is an overall respect level in the clubhouse. What is different on the field as far as managerial styles? I'll again go back to the roster or the lineup depth and the lineup fluidity. I don't think over the past month of June, Ollie Marmel has rolled out the same lineup more than three days in a row. He really likes to kind of play the matchups and put guys in different spots. Dylan Carlson, for example, has batted in every single spot in the lineup one through nine this season, and we're not even halfway through it. So to be able to have that that depth, of course, out of fairness, Mike Schultz didn't have that depth in the AAA, in the AAA team. There weren't a lot of guys that were ready to go at the major league level that the Cardinals could kind of store in Memphis. But this year they do by design. 2022 was always going to be their prime year of contention. So because Ollie Marmel and the front office have that flexibility to bounce guys between the major league and minor league roster while keeping them on the 40 man, it's opened up a door of opportunity to have that kind of continuous flow in the lineup and be able to get creative and play the matchups and put different guys in different positions. It's why guys like Brendan Donovan and Tommy Edmond are so valuable because they can play different spots, hit in different orders in the lineup, but still be everyday players. I think we're seeing Major League Baseball trend more to utilizing the utility man approach. It's why I think, and this is an argument for a different day, there should be a utility gold glove award each year for each league. But I think the biggest difference so far in this first half of the season has been a manager that has really embraced lineup fluidity and not necessarily stuck to the same nine every single day. I believe the Fielding Bible does have a utility player now for their award. So they're, they're a step ahead of the gold glove, you know, of the Rawlings people here. Yes. Good. Let's, let's make it a movement. Yeah. Let's, uh, you know, we're running out of time, but one thing I want to, you know, this is a change of pace. Katie, sure. uh, going going back to you being a you know a girl who grew up rooting for the Giants, you know saw a lot of the Oakland A's. You moved to St. Louis what maybe sixteen months ago, so you uh, have learned a ton about Cardinals history since that time. Every you know Musial, Gibson, Dean names you obviously knew, but are there things you have learned that sort of stand out as maybe being intriguing or surprising to you? That's a good question. I feel like I've always appreciated baseball history, regardless of the fact of growing up in the Bay Area and uh, you know being a Giants fan, going to A's games. And that was a big reason why I wanted to, to take this beat for the Cardinals is because I don't think you can pick an organization, maybe the Yankees, but from the National League, that has as much cherished history and means so much to the city that they're located in. And I was always told St. Louis is a baseball town, but I'd never been there. I'd never even been to Missouri. I'd barely been to the Midwest in my life. So when I got here, you know, people can tell you all the time, this is a baseball town. You know, the Cardinals are really the heartbeat of of the city. And I, I believed them. I guess I didn't really understand just how much that rang true and how passionate the people are about their team here until you experienced it. I had my first full capacity opening day at Bush Stadium this year. April 2022. And it was unlike anything I'd ever seen before from a baseball perspective. I mean, the amount of passion and care this city and these fans take in this team is something that not every 30, not all 30 teams will will really experience. Not every fan base is like this. That's just the reality of the sport. It's no knock on them. But different teams have different histories and different fan perspectives. What the the fans of St. Louis have taught me about this team and the history of this team and how much they care is something I'll never take for granted. Because if you're looking to cover baseball and you are looking to really feel 
in tune with a city that you know nothing about and are looking or eager to kind of make a, a bridge in the community that you're moving to, this was really the perfect place. I mean, St. Louis, by definition, should be a baseball town. And it's been really fun to experience that in firsthand. And I feel like grow with this city throughout my career. I learned a pretty fun piece of Cardinals history when the Cardinals were in town. Interestingly enough, I did not learning learn it from Derek Gould. Although when I mentioned this to Derek, he said, oh, yes, of course, it was, you know, it's in his book. But in 1966, the Cardinals had a left-handed pitcher named Larry Jaster, who had a career year in 66, winning 11 games. Five of his wins were complete game shutouts against the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers, which is, it's a great piece of trivia. The only time he faced them. And the, the Dodgers went on to the World Series that year. And Larry Jaster is a small footnote in Cardinals history who did something very remarkable. Yeah, and that's, I think, what makes the Cardinals organization so much fun to cover is there is, no matter what era, no matter what decade or year, there is always some sort of nugget of history where you're like, that happened? Why don't we talk about this more? Oh, it's because, you know, there's over a century of of baseball facts and knowledge to go through with this organization. But that's what makes makes covering it so impactful to me. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm a baseball fan too, not necessarily a fan of any teams at this point, but a fan of the game. So to be able to have such a small impact in it and a small voice is not something I take lightly at all. And with that in mind, uh, two things that we should close with. One is Adam Wainwright and his appreciation of the game. He went up to the press box at Fenway Park, you know, last week. I've heard he's been doing that to every ballpark. He is walking around the park in what may well be his last year, checking out the press box, all the nooks and crannies, just experiencing things that a player really doesn't do in his trips to ballparks. I I think that's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. I believe he dubbed it his day after pitching old man walk. And after every start the next day, he'll walk around the stadium. He does this at Bush Stadium a lot and he'll just kind of take it in. What What was remarkable to me about the trip that he did at Fenway Park was he walked up to the press box and there's a security guy there, I'm sure you know, named Mike Flanagan. And he asked for a tour and he got one. And what was remarkable to me was the security attendant didn't know who Adam Wainwright was when he walked in. He had to ask. He said, sure, but how how did you get in here? And Adam said, oh, I pitched yesterday. And was so humble and so gracious about it and really enjoyed, I was talking to Adam about this the other day, really enjoyed the conversations that he had walking around the park. I think that's what makes Adam Wainwright Adam Wainwright, right? I mean, yesterday or Tuesday, I should say, after his start, he walked around Bush Stadium and hit a signed baseball for fans and called it a scavenger hunt, put it on Twitter, stuff like that, where you can tell Adam is just really enjoying what could be his final year, although I'm not sold on it. I think if he'd be back next year in baseball, and then just making that appreciation for fans and for him at the same time. And baseball is truly special. So I want to close, Katie, with uh, your grandfather, who you mentioned earlier. You wrote about him last fall when he passed away, including that he had a tremendous love for the Red Sox. Yes. I would assume that makes you visiting Fenway Park more than just a work experience. You probably really sit back and think about not only baseball, but life. Absolutely. My mom came with me on that trip. It was my first time at Fenway Park. You know, obviously the Cardinals don't go to Boston too often. And on Saturday, that Saturday game, I took a few innings off in the middle of the game just to sit with her in the stands and take the game in at, from a fan perspective. And it was a, it was of course a work trip, but to be there on Father's Day weekend and 
be at Fenway Park for the first time with my mom. I just thought that was something really special. And, you know, it is cliche, but I do feel like he was there. He was probably annoyed at that game because the Red Sox were losing. But uh, it's, it's moments like that where I think the connections that you make in the sport transcend throughout the relationship. Maybe you lose that person that you in, in life, but you still have that connection and those memories that you made with them. That's what I think makes baseball so intricate and so special to me and to so many others, I'm sure. But to have that moment, you know, there's it's a long season. We, we hear that a lot. So you really have to rely on those little moments. And that's not one that I'll be forgetting anytime soon. No, very well spoken, Katie. This is a perfect place to close. So, you know, baseball is a joy and it was a joy to have you as a guest on Fangraphs Audio. David, thank you so much for having me. And thank you, everybody, for listening to Fangraphs Audio. For Fangraphs Audio, this is Jay Jaffe. On April 15th, Major League Baseball celebrated the 75th anniversary of Jackie Robinson's debut, and with it, the fall of the color line that had been in place since 1887. Less than three months after Robinson first played a regular season game for the Brooklyn Dodgers, on July 5th, 1947, Larry Doby debuted for the Cleveland Indians. Unlike the 28-year-old Robinson, who had been signed by the Dodgers 18 months earlier and spent the previous season in the White Miners, all part of team president Branch Rickey's carefully considered plan, the 23-year-old Doby was thrust into action almost immediately. He was a Newark Eagles star one day and then an AL pioneer just a few days later. Doby struggled and played sparingly in the 1947 season, making just 33 plate appearances for Cleveland and collecting five hits while enduring similar indignities as Robinson. Segregated hotels and restaurants, racist epithets and bench jockeying, and above all, isolation. Owner Bill Veck Jr., who masterminded the plan to integrate the American League, would later concede that he brought Doby along too quickly. Things changed for Doby and the Indians in 1948, however. Doby, who had been brought in as a second baseman but largely limited to pinch hitting duty, moved to center field and flourished, helping to power the Indians to just their second championship in franchise history. While Robinson has been properly acknowledged for his trailblazing, including election to the Hall of Fame in his first year of eligibility in 1962, and eventually a major league-wide retirement of his number 42 and a day held in his honor, appreciation for Doby lagged. His stellar major league career ended in 1959, but Cleveland didn't retire his number 14 until 1994, and he wasn't elected to the Hall until 98, 39 years after he last played. Last year, Luke Eplin wrote an opinion piece for the Washington Post calling upon Major League Baseball to recognize Doby with an annual day in his honor. The piece was published just a few months after that of Eplin's book, Our Team, the epic story of four men in the World Series that changed baseball. In the book, Eplin traces the arcs of Doby, Vec, Cleveland Fireballer Bob Feller, and Negro League's ace Satchel Page as they joined forces to lead that 1948 team to what remains the franchise's most recent championship. Given the approaching milestone of Doby's debut and the recent release of Our Team in Paperback, I thought it would be an ideal time to speak to Luke about his book, which I recently read and greatly enjoyed. So welcome to the show, Luke. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation here for a few weeks because I picked up your book uh, several months ago and finally got a chance to read it while I was on uh, my annual uh, trip up to Cape Cod uh, with my family here. It's always a good time for me to, to knock down at least one book. And, uh, this is, this is something I think I've been, I've been itching to read for a while because, uh, I'm, I always feel especially that, that Larry Doby has been historically underserved, uh, given his pivotal role in baseball's integration story. And, uh, we've got the 75th anniversary here coming up of his uh, debut in the American League. And, you know, it seems like uh, a, a very good time to talk about him here. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I too uh, felt the same way. And that's one of the reasons that drew me to this subject matter is that I grew up a lifelong baseball fan near the St. Louis area with a big Cardinals fan. Of course, I knew the parameters of the Jackie Robinson story with Branch Rickey and Jackie Robinson, but I knew Larry Doby just as the answer to a trivia question, who was the second black baseball player to make it into Major League Baseball. And so I figured that if I didn't know anything more beyond him than that, then there must have been a lot of other readers that would have similar experiences. Yeah. So, yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that. You, you're not, you're not a, a regular writer about baseball, correct? I've done some pieces here and there, but no, I've never been a beat writer or anything along those lines. According to your bio, your work has appeared online for The Atlantic, The New Yorker, GQ, Slate, Salon, The Daily Beast, and The Paris Review Daily. What do you mostly write about? I would say I mostly write about culture, books, things like this. Um, I've worked in book publishing for uh, quite a while now, so I'm, I'm more sort of a liter- literature writer. So you mentioned that, like you said, the the, the Doby uh, seemed like more of an answer to a trivia question than a, than a fully fleshed out character. Tell me a little bit more about you know the the 1948 season and how how you saw this story emerging. Well, I came about this story through a roundabout way. I am from St. Louis. I grew up a big Cardinals fan, but my grandfather was a big fan of the St. Louis Browns. Of course, okay. St. Louis used to have two Major League Baseball teams before the Browns departed for Baltimore. And so I, I was always fascinated by Bill Beck. My grandfather used to tell me tons of stories about him uh, on the Browns and, and the experiences that he had going to games during Bill Beck's tenure there. And oh, that's so, awesome. yeah, that's where I really started. And I wanted to write a book about Beck and the Browns. And it was really only while researching Beck's earlier tenure as owner of the Indians, he was owner of the Indians a few years before he bought the St. Louis Browns, that I came across his integration story. And that's what really transfixed me. And so it really wasn't that I was, I was interested in the 1948 Cleveland Indians. I knew very little about that team. It was more just that I started with Bill Beck as a character that I thought would be larger than life enough to fill a book and then sort of surrounded him with these other figures that sort of played off of him nicely. Okay, that's that's interesting. I know you write about you write about this in in, in the book, obviously. But so before Vec has owned uh, any other major league team, he's the son of a of a, of a former baseball executive, uh, Bill Vec Senior, and mm-hmm. uh, president of the Cubs. Uh, and uh, as a kid, he was the one who planted the ivy. Uh, in the in in the uh, walls at Wrigley Field, but mm-hmm. in 1942 he tries to buy the Phillies, who are I guess bankrupt, and his plan with so many players off at war is to uh, is to stock the team with players from the Negro leagues, and uh, like you know as as you say the 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 plan. Uh, meets some resistance or is thwarted by uh, Judge Landis, uh, the commissioner of baseball, and Ford Frick, the president of the National League, right? Yes, that's correct. So Bill Beck, as you mentioned, grew up in Chicago. He's the son of Bill Beck Sr., who was the president of the Chicago Cubs. And he basically, the ballpark is his playground as a kid. He he knows more baseball by the time he's 18 than a lot of executives who have 20 years of experience do. He becomes a sort of worker with the Chicago Cubs and then eventually buys the Milwaukee Brewers that he makes in kind of into kind of his laboratory for these wild promotional ideas that he has. He has this Beck has this idea that baseball and and sort of sideshows can go together as a form of theater almost. They can coexist and they can sort of cultivate new fans if you do 
giveaways, promotions, fireworks, all of these sorts of things to draw fans. But he also has a more forward-thinking view in terms of race. He grew up in Chicago, as I mentioned, and and he grows up going to the East-West All-Star game there. He grows up going to see the Chicago American Giants. He knows how good black baseball players are, and he sort of formulates this idea, which is contrary to a lot of white fans and executives at the time, that Negro League players uh, are, or the best of them are not only major league worthy, but could sort of be the difference between a good team and a pennant winning team. And so with a lot of people going to war in the early 1940s, he has this idea to buy the Philadelphia Phillies, a down on his luck club, and stock the team with uh, Negro League stars, which he hopes them will propel them into a pennant. And of course, the biggest star that he has his eye on is Satchel Paige, whom Vec has been following for years by that point. Okay, so I guess there, there's always been some controversy about whether, you know, how far Vec got in this effort, mm-hmm. mainly uh, a lack of, of contemporary evidence and documentation and Vec's own tendency towards embellishment uh, in his in his retelling of the story, which I believe uh, first came about in, in Vec is in Rec, although it's been 20 years since I read that book myself. Mm-hmm. What can you what can you tell us about about that about that controversy at this point? Well, it is always, let's say, not particularly wise to just rely on Bill Vec's word because he, <laughs> as you mentioned, does tend towards embellishment. I would say that the way that Vec operates is that he loves a really good story. And so right. <laughs> he will, uh, through telling stories, he will bend facts or sort of rearrange things in a way that will give him maximal effect. And so I think that with this story with the Milwaukee Brewers, that has happened over time. You can see articles at this time of Bill Vec being interviewed about whether he is pursuing the Brewers and giving sort of wishy-washy answers. So there was knowledge that, that, that this was something that he was thinking about. And then as early as the 19, sort of 1947, 1948, Bill Vec starts talking about how he had planned to put one or multiple black players on the the roster. And so it isn't that it doesn't necessarily have documentation. I think that the controversy goes on whether or not this was something that he pursued as seriously as he presents it in Vegas and Rec. And for that, it's kind of impossible to to know. Um, I there are claims in Vecas and Rec, particularly with Dobie, that I did not put in my book because I could not corroborate some of the things that that he claimed. But for this one, I do think that there is a Beck talks about it so con- so often over the years, starting in the 1940s until his death, that I do think that at least he had the formulation. How serious he was in actually right. doing it, I don't know. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, obviously, you know, the the actions speak you know speak louder than the words, and he was the for, you know the forerunner of uh, or the you know the, the instigator of, of integration in the American League. So. Because obviously he wasn't, you know, this wasn't something that that he hatched overnight. Uh, he had been thinking about it. He's he's a he's a extremely compelling character, and really, you know, I think you've seized upon in the four characters that you're, you know, the four the personalities that you're highlighting. You've got, uh, you know, Bob Feller, the the boy wonder fireballer who's still trying to, uh, or he's trying to recapture his pre-war mojo and so focused mm-hmm. on making up for lost salary that he's overextending himself. And then Satchel Page, the ageless Negro Leagues ace, who's wondering if he's ever going to get a shot in the white majors. Mm-hmm. And then Vec. And then you've got Dobie, who's, you know, I think, uh, 
still, you know, I guess he's he's a young player, gets a start in the Negro Leagues before World War II, before going off to war, and is young enough to to emerge as a, you know as a real prospect for a post-integration major leagues. Tell me about the the decision or the you know the I guess the contrast between a young player like Doby and a uh, a veteran like Page and why Vec, who'd had his eye as you said on Satchel Page, chose to go the the Larry Doby route instead. You said several interesting things there, and one of the ones that I want to highlight before getting to your question is that Vec. Page and Feller, to me, seem of a piece with one another. They are men who all wrote more than one autobiography in their times. Uh They really relied on their narratives and sort of massaging their own narratives, sort of using the narratives as currency to advance their own personal and financial interests. They were sort of experts at playing with the press. And they were, you know, great at sort of thinking themselves as sort of entrepreneurial individuals in some sense. Dobie was not like that. Dobie never wrote his autobiography. Dobie did not like to do interviews. He was introverted. He was much quieter than Paige or Jackie Robinson or something like that. So I found him to be the most difficult character to get to know simply because there's so much less documentation about him. In terms of why Vec would have pursued Dobie over Satchel Page, whenever Vec buys the Indians in 1946, he the Indians are in sixth place, and there's very little chance that they could sort of thrust themselves into the pennant race. It's already sort of midway through the season. And so he just basically says, well, I'm just get, saying this season is a wash, and I'm going to do as many sort of outrageous things as I can to draw fans. So he hires clowns as coaches. He brings in stuntmen. He sort of does fireworks. He does all of these sorts of things and gets a reputation of being sort of a showman in in a way. He is dead serious about integration and he does not want to make it seem like his pursuit of a player from the Negro League is just part of these stunts that he is increasingly getting his name known for. And so he is worried that if he brings in someone like Satchel Page, who is by this point, you know, people don't even know how old he is. Some people think he's 50 or 60 or whatever. They, They would think that it would be on par with sort of uh, hiring a, a clown in the coaching box or something like that. Whereas if you bring in Dobie, a player that really nobody in white baseball knows, but is a young person who is sort of tearing up the Negro leagues and has his best years ahead of them, Vex thinks that he can sort of telegraph his sincerity and not be accused of just doing this to draw fans or just because of the novelty of it. Okay, that makes that makes sense here. Now, so he signs Dobie. In Mm -hmm. July, and notably actually pays the Newark Eagles and Effa Manley and the uh, owners for Dobie's contract in in marked contrast to uh, what Branch Rickey did in in signing Robinson and and some of the other Negro Leagues players that he initially acquired. But, Mm -hmm. you know, Dobie really only gets, I think, kind of a, 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 we only really get a brief glimpse of Dobie. He starts, what, one, two games? Yeah. You know, when, when he joins the team. Yeah, there's several factors there. One is that, as you had mentioned, Dobie is thrust onto the Cleveland Indians very rapidly. Jackie Robinson is signed at the at the end of the 1945 season in October. He has one spring training, an entire an entire minor league season, and then another spring training before he finally makes his major league debut on the Dodgers. It's basically sort of an 18 months transition period so that both he and his teammates can wrap their minds around this idea of integration. 
Larry Doby, on the other hand, is just thrown into the fire. He plays one game on July 4th, 1947, boards a train in Newark that is going to Chicago, meets up with his Indians teammates there the very next morning, and within sort of 24 hours, he's on the Indians. It is such a massive change for him that he would later tell Wendell Smith of the Pittsburgh Courier that he can't stop his teeth from chattering in his first few times at bat. And his teammates <laughs> wow. are, are the same sort of way. They, they did not know that integration was coming and they haven't quite wrapped their minds around it. I think what happens with the fact that Dobie gets very little playing time is that Dobie's third game with the Indians, Lou Boudreau, who is a player, player manager of the Indians, tells Eddie Robinson, who is a 26-year-old first baseman who is just trying and trying to stick in the majors, that he's sitting him at first base so that Larry Dobie can play there. Rather than accepting this decision, Eddie Robinson throws down his glove and says, I'm quitting the team. And he refuses to dress, doesn't come up, he's going to leave the Indians. And it really takes one of the Indians' coaches to go down and sort of talk to him and, and say, you don't want to do this, please rejoin the team. But the message becomes kind of clear that if Lou Boudreau substitutes Larry Doby for somebody on the Indians, you could risk having a mutiny or player unrest or something like this. And so after Boudreau starts Dobie that third game on the Indians, he never again starts him until the next season. And so Dobie has to go through the entire 1947 season, both unprepared for uh, the sort of emotional aspects of, in of integration and with uh, a team that is, if not hostile, at least sort of very wary of his presence there. Yeah, it, it, you know, it strikes me that this could have really fallen apart just because it was done in such haphazard fashion and in a way that probably wasn't fair to Dobie or to his teammates. Because like you said, you know, Jackie Robinson had a whole winter plus a whole minor league season and effectively two spring trainings, you know, with the Dodgers, you know, for his teammates to get used to him and to get used to the idea of integration. It still didn't go down very smoothly, but Dobie is, you know, like you said, he's in, you know, he just shows up one day and is in the lineup the next day and taking the, you know, at least temporarily taking the job of a white veteran and uh, and pushing things to the brink of a mutiny. And, and I, you know, I guess it's it's amazing that, that it didn't all fall apart there. Yeah, even Bill Vec, even Bill Vec, who is is really the instigator of this plan, he's very unlike Branch Rickey, who sort of methodically plans Jackie Robinson's entry into the major leagues. Vec has this belief that that someone as good as Larry Doby was in the Negro Leagues would be able to thrive in the majors, and without, he don't think he really takes into account these other factors with Larry Doby having to deal with all white spaces and hostile fans and things like that, and the white teammates who don't believe that Doby deserves his spot on the team. They think that he should go through the minor leagues and rise through there as they had. And so they, they sort of have resentment toward him. Even Bill Vec, a few weeks into the 1947 experiment with Larry Doby, says that this was a mistake and I don't think that we're really going to play him a lot this year. You can see that he, he has been sort of chastened by the, the sort of near mutiny that happens. Yeah. And, you know, as you note throughout the book, Dobie had to endure the same slights and indignities that Jackie Robinson did, the segregated hotels and restaurants, uh, the bench jockeying and the epithets from, from players and from fans, 
the cool receptions from his own teammates, including Feller, mm-hmm. and was vastly less prepared. I think, and you know, I mean, he while he'd been he was worldly in that he'd been you know a soldier and gone overseas. You know, he wasn't. I mean, Jackie Robinson was a college graduate who'd already attained some fame in the context of integration by playing football at UCLA, whereas, you know, Dobie only had the, the Negro Leagues baseball experience. I mean, did I guess he did have some basketball experience. Am I right? Yeah, he played you know, semi-professional that, basketball. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then he gets, he obviously, he, he, when he gets to Cleveland, he's blocked at the position that they have planned for him second base by an all-star in Joe Gordon and just is just thoroughly isolated it's really striking just you know i mean i think you do a good job of, of painting a portrait of how just how isolated and, and alone he feels and you know he's he's been thrown into the deep end with without a life preserver yeah it really kind of makes you feel i mean Dobie even would say sort of sort of midway through that season that he wishes he was back in the negro leagues it, it mm-hmm. becomes so so hard for him and he also feels that you know jackie robinson is in new york city which is the media capital of the world everything that he does is kind of documented and the press is, is just kind of always there whereas the press really lose interest in Dobie quite quickly whenever they see he's not playing. And so right. all, all the things that he is suffering, similarly to Jackie Robinson, are, are either not reported or underreported. And in some ways that could even make it worse because uh, there's not sort of the, the spotlight that could come on those abuses. So Toby would go throughout his whole life basically saying that, uh, you know, the integration story that we commonly tell, which centers on Jackie Robinson, you know, is, is deserved and we should be telling that story. But he goes through the exact same thing and has a much different experience and that baseball should have room for two different integration stories that happen sort of concurrently. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, and I think, I think you've, you've hit on, you know, the many reasons why his story might not be celebrated as much as because it wasn't, you know, the instant success. I mean, Jackie Robinson, it takes, takes him obviously a while to adjust to the major leagues, but, you know, even early in that 1947 season, he has that stretch of like a, you know, a 10 game stretch. That's kind of a turning point where suddenly he's helping the Dodgers win ball games and, and, and his teammates are seeing that, oh, this guy is, this guy is for real. Uh, and this guy can play. Whereas, whereas, um, you know, Dobie is, uh, you know, an afterthought, a pinch hitter and, and mostly just, uh, you know, getting, uh, one at bat here, one at bat there and, and sitting for days at a time and, you know, mm-hmm. again, uh, isolated. So I guess that, that answers, my, that sort of answers my question, which was, you know, that do you think it's just that, you know, nobody cares about the second person to come along to achieve a milestone, the Buzz Aldrin's of history? And I think you've, I think you've set it out that, that there really is more to it than that. And there was kind of a perfect storm of factors that, that, that sort of set him back and made, made him anything but an overnight sensation. I agree. I I will say that in structuring the book, and one of the reasons why I really wanted to include Bob Feller in it, is that Bob Feller, in my mind, has the quintessential white baseball narrative. I don't think anything, I don't Mm -hmm. think any origin story has ever surpassed it, where he is a young boy growing up on a farm in the middle of Iowa. His dad senses his incredible ability, builds him a baseball field right there on his farm. It's a kind of almost like the field of dreams. And then at age 17, he makes it onto the Indians and his very first start ever in the majors, he ties the American League for, record for strikeouts. Four starts later, he ties the major league record for strikeouts. He becomes so famous that his high school graduation is broadcast live across the country from coast to coast on NBC radio. It's kind of, it's baffling to think about. And so I really wanted to start the book with that being the the great origin story. But then the book kind of ends with 
Larry Doby's kind of seizing the narrative away from Feller because you're saying that he does have this really, really tough 1947 season where he looks like nothing but a failure, someone that probably would, doesn't even belong in the league. And then he has this miraculous turnaround in 1948 that really his play and his sort of improvement throughout that 1948 season is really what allows the Indians to finally get past clubs like the Yankees and the Red Sox. And then he leads all the the, hit, the Indians hitters in batting average in the World Series. Doby is the X factor on that Indians team. And so I think that that story of Larry Doby going overnight from the Negro Leagues to the majors, having nowhere to play, being shunned, almost having a mutiny, and then turning it around and leading his team to a world championship is as improbable as the Bob Feller story. It just, we don't see it we don't see the narrative in its full arc or that narrative uh-huh. isn't being sort of formulated the way that it's perhaps easier to formulate Jackie's story because he, he succeeds so early in his first year, they immediately go to the world series. But the Larry Doby story for me, if you just ended after 1948 is as incredible as any that baseball has ever known. Yeah. That's a, I think that's, a, that's, that's a good way of looking at it. And I think you've, you've fleshed it out there. I found Doby's relationships with the other key characters of the book and, you know, very intriguing. I, 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 I did not know, uh, that Joe Gordon was, was so welcoming to him, for example. I mean, this is a guy who's, you know, essentially trying to take his job. Gordon's an all-star who's kind of regained his own mojo post-war since coming to Cleveland and is one of the more accepting of the teammates there. And, you know, Feller, mm-hmm is kind of lost in his own, you know, world. And I guess I was surprised and maybe I, I'm sure I've read this before because I've, you know, I read the, the Larry Ty uh, biography of Satchel Page, but mm-hmm. I had forgotten how, you know, there was such a kind of a generational gap between Page and Doby. And, you know, while they had, you know, they were, they were united by their skin color and the fact that they, you know, could not go, come and go as freely as, uh, uh, their white teammates, they didn't really have a, a, a very close bond. No, they were 17 years apart in age. And that was the main thing that Larry Doby talked about constantly in newspaper interviews with the black press from 1947 to mid 1948. He wanted another teammate from the Negro Leagues so that the, he could have somebody to talk through things, sort of be there in his loneliness, sort of somebody that could understand everything he was going through. What he got instead was somebody who was old enough to be his dad. And Uh Satchel Paige grew up in a different time and generation than Larry Doby. And he adapted a persona that was similar to the screen character of Step and Fetch It. In fact, people used to call Satchel Paige Step and Pitch It in white white, uh, publications. Sort of a slow walking deadpan individual who would use humor in interviews to deflect things and could play to certain stereotypes that maybe white individuals held of black players while at the same time completely dominating the competition. So, you know, allowing sort of fans to feel comfortable in his presence while not sacrificing his greatness. And Larry Doby sort of looked at Satchel Page and saw a stereotype and saw something mm-hmm. that, that he and Jackie Robinson were trying to get beyond. Doby always used the word dignity. In Satchel Page, he didn't necessarily see that. And it was it was a lifelong thing for Doby. You can see interviews with him in the 90s where he's still saying that Satchel Page was bad for baseball. It was just huh. an image and a, a figure that, that Page struck that Doby was trying to fight against. And so Page and Doby just simply did not get along. 
Yeah, that's it. That's interesting. The other relationship that really kind of fascinated me, and I, you don't really go into great detail there, mm-hmm. and I don't haven't seen anybody really do great detail, is the relationship between Doby and Tris Speaker, who's one of the great yeah. center fielders in Major League history and a, and, and a pivotal figure in, in Cleveland history. But in his playing days, he, he's reputedly a member of the Ku Klux Klan from mm-hmm. the for the same hometown as the as one of the past grand wizards of the KKK mm-hmm. infamous for blathering about the war between the states my god this guy sounds like just mm-hmm. insufferable and yet it's speaker as much as anybody who sees the potential of Larry Doby the raw potential and is like and and helps him get to where he needs to be to be a major league ball player it's a really fascinating thing. Bill Bill Vec hires Tris Speaker as a spring training instructor. And um, one of the major changes that the Indians brass does between 1947 and 1948 is basically tell Larry Doby that you're not going to have any chance of cracking the Indians infield. You have to learn how to be an outfielder, a position Doby really had not played before professionally. And so Speaker, who is probably the greatest defensive center fielder perhaps ever, certainly of his time, saw the way that Larry Doby could move his sort of tremendous athletic ability, his speed, his arm, and everything like that, and saw somewhat a, a younger version of himself. And so if Speaker did have these prejudices, he was willing to set them aside and really kind of make Doby into his heir. And he would say these beautiful things to the press that, that, you know, if I were managing and I had nine players like Larry Doby, we'd be unstoppable. Like he just could not stop praising Doby. And whenever Doby does well at the end of the 1948 season, kind of fulfills that potential, like Tris Speaker is, is, is being interviewed and, and is almost like a proud father of him. So uh, that's, it's uh, that's interesting. It, it's a nice, beautiful, it's a beautiful thing that they had. Yeah, that's that's really cool. So Doby goes on and and he's he stars for the Indians in 1948 and then goes on to have seven straight All-Star appearances after this and uh leads mm-hmm. the league in home runs a couple times, slugging percentage and uh second place in the MVP voting in 1954, the year that the Indians stormed to their other pennant of that era, mm-hmm. 111 wins, 43 losses. And, you know, I was struck by this when, you know, when I'm, when I was, you know, doing my research on the Hall of Fame and before I did my book in 2017, but had re- mm-hmm. written, written about Doby even further back than that. You know, I see a player who's, who deserved, you know, for his career, deserved to be considered among the league's elite. And, and, and I think in his time was, but was quickly forgotten after disappearing from the major league scene in the, in the, uh, uh, late fifties. He's only thirty-five years old, and you know it's it's only been you know thirteen years. It's still longer than Jackie Robinson had in the major leagues. But where Jackie Robinson got seventy-seven point five percent of the vote when he became eligible for the Hall in nineteen sixty-two, Doby gets becomes eligible four years later, gets two point three percent, and then three point four percent a year later. His numbers are are as good or better as Jackie's, and you know he's got the counting stats. I mean, they're, you know, they're modest counting stats for, you know, when you're comparing to, to a Tris Speaker, obviously, but, but, mm-hmm. you know, he's leading the, like I said, leading the league in home runs. He's got, you know, mark, marquee accomplishments there. And yet he's just ignored 
by the writers, yeah. doesn't even appear on another ballot after 1967, even though he's still eligible. And then he's not even considered by the Veterans Committee until 1995. I mean, there's like 28 years pass. He's got uh, some time in baseball there. He scouts. Uh, he works as an executive. He gets a brief shot at managing the White Sox in, what's it, 1978? Uh, yeah. Yeah. 78, uh, as an interim manager after Bob Lemon is fired. And of course, Lemon goes on to manage the Yankees to the World Series after he's let go by the White Sox. And mm -hmm. I just feel like, you know, and then, you know, Dobie needs four years on the Veterans Committee to get in. And, and he only lives for five years after that. And it's just, it's just a really. Yeah, it's in keeping with the way that Dobie's legacy has has evolved. It's, it, he's he was an overlooked individual for for so so long. I do think that after 1948, whenever Dobie really has his breakout year and leads the Indians to the World Series, there is this triumphalism at the end of that, spoken by people like Bill Vack and publications like the Sporting News, where Larry Dobie is now the standard bearer for basically black baseball players from here on out. They really thought that Dobie's ceiling was much higher than Jackie Robinson and that hmm. Vec was saying that he was going to be as good or even better than someone like Stan Musial, who was at the height of his powers then. And there was a sense that Larry Dobie never quite reached that potential, that he was up and down, that he was too much in his head, that if, uh, I, I can't remember that there was a columnist in Cleveland named Franklin Lewis who said that, uh, Dobie's problems all stem from above the neckline, that that he really was somebody who would let sort of bad calls affect him, and, and he was surly and grumpy and things like that. And I don't think that he was a favorite among writers and others. And of course, I think that at that time, we were not considering the entire context that Larry Dobie was going through, all that loneliness and uh, all the sort of abuse that he had to suffer and the indignities that he was under at that time. And we didn't necessarily factor that in with him because he wasn't as vocal as, as right. perhaps some of the others. So, yeah, I think that there, the sort of story about Larry Doby was one of failed potential rather than of what he actually did. And that sort of colored what so many contemporaries saw or, or thought of him. Yeah, that seems almost tragic that that it you know that he didn't get his full due. I mean, obviously, at least he lived did live long enough to see himself in the Hall of Fame. Um, yeah, and I know uh, a few years ago Cleveland put a statue up outside Progressive Field. They retired his number, I think, even before he was elected. Um, so he lived to see that as well. But I just I feel like Major League Baseball really needs to do more to uh, shine a spotlight on Dobie and on on the hardships that he endured and. You know, yeah. I don't see uh, a necessity to retire 14 league wide the way they did Jackie Robinson uh, and and 42. But I think it would be nice to have a Larry Doby day. Just where, where well, in fact, I wrote an article in the Washington Post uh, last year to, that that made that exact argument that yeah. every July 5th we should have Larry Doby day where we honor him. And it, as you said, I don't think we need to retire his number across the league. But having a day like that for Larry Doby Day would stand in not only for Doby, but also for the pioneers that came after him. Yeah. I think that by having Jackie Robinson Day, which, again, is very well deserved and we should continue doing that, it makes him seem singular or at least that he was the one that sort of opened the floodgates and, and, then, and then made it safer for everybody to come in, which, of course, he did. But there were so many various experiences that happened with these players that Larry Doby Day could stand in for the multiplicity of other integration stories that 
we maybe overlook because of the singular focus on Robinson. And I think it's just really tragic, not only that we don't have that, but that the Guardians will not even be playing at home during July 5th this year. I think that's the the Major League Baseball should really reconsider this. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously too too late to do anything about the the schedule this year, but you're right. I think this is something that that really MLB has dropped the ball on. and, And I think, you know, the Guardians, the Indians have dropped the ball on. You know, I think yeah, they've said nice things about Dobie and and uh, you know the statue. It's it, not everybody gets a statue, and there's there's what there's three of them now: Feller, Tommy, and and Dobie and and Boudreaux and Boudreaux. Okay, all right, four. Yeah. So that's I mean uh, you know that's pretty select company, but uh, right. I, I do think he deserves more, and I th- and, and and I agree with you. So. Anyway, Luke, again, I really enjoyed the book. Our team is now out in paperback here. I think people should uh, should check it out if they have any interest in the story here. And thanks so much for sh- for sharing your details uh, about the book and how you came to this project and uh, spending some time with us today. Thanks, Jay. This was a lot of fun. All right, great. For Fangraphs Audio, I'm Jay Jaffe. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Katie Wu and Luke Eplin for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider recommending it to a friend or two. It helps us out. After you've checked out the Fangraphs shop, and after you've checked out our new merch over at BreakingTea.com, don't forget to sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter as well. It is the best way to keep up on everything we have going on at the site, free to your inbox every weekday. Thank you for listening, have a good week, and we'll talk to you next time.